welcome, whether you're visiting family members or you just happen to be holidaying through the area or you were just curious to see what Easter and this celebration is all about, um, welcome to church. Uh, we, we do this every Sunday morning, 10 o'clock here, and we'd love you to, uh, to come and be involved as much as you would like to be involved in our church services and in the life of our church family. We're just going to open up in prayer as we just look at to what Jesus has done for us. Heavenly Father, at this time of year we we celebrate Jesus' death and resurrection, not just because they are spectacular, but because why you did it and what it achieved. We pray as we uh, look to what you have declared and what we have written in your word, that we would be convicted of its truth, And as we are convicted of its truth, we might have means to rejoice that you have provided salvation, that you have conquered every last possible thing that we would have need to fear. We thank you that you have done that for us. And we pray that even if we have known you for many years, that that joy of knowing what you have done to secure our salvation uh, might overwhelm with thanksgiving in what you've done. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Late 2015, I was down in Victoria. I was pastoring a church down there in Victoria. In late 2015, after obviously applying and everything else, I found out that I'd been accepted for the, for the role as pastor here at this church. When you're planning on doing a big move from one state to another, one of the things you think about is, where am I going to live? And it's quite fun, I don't know about you, but we found it actually quite fun looking at real estate websites, seeing what's around and having a look at all sorts of different things. And there was one place when we were casually looking at that was in Darling Heights we really liked the look of. Um, but it wasn't really quite time to um, do anything about it. So we kept looking every now and then and all of a sudden we noticed that one was no longer there. Someone has, has put an offer and we think, oh well, that one's gone. A little bit while later, my brother and his family came out to visit and the same thing, they were interested, well, where are you going to live? And so we just started flicking around, looking at real estate things online and all of a sudden, this house that we were interested in, there it is again, it's back on the market. Now what has happened, someone has once point in time had committed, this is the house that we're going to buy. But when it came to getting the resources, the finances to secure that, we're not able to do it. So when we found out it was back on the market, I actually booked a flight, rental car, accommodation, flew up two days, looked as many houses for sale and for rent as I could in two two day period, ended up putting offer on the house and we ended up getting it. And they were quite impressed by the fact that we could say that if we put on an offer, um, finances were were secure. Why am I telling that analogy now? Am I just sort of telling a little anecdote of how we happened to get here? I see a connection between the two and the idea of the the relationship between Good Friday and Jesus' resurrection on Easter Sunday. On Good Friday, Jesus had already spoken about the death that he would die, that it would be a death by which he would conquer sin, a death by which he would conquer death, a death, he says, all who would come to me will have life. They have passed from death to life. All who come to me I'll raise up on the last day. And as Jesus is raised, it is shown that he has the resources to secure everything that was promised in his death. 
On Good Friday, we celebrated his death. We celebrated his words that it is finished. Nothing else needed to be done to pay the price in full for our sin. We saw it as the fulfilment of Jesus' own words that he was the good shepherd who laid his life down for the sheep. At the end of chapter 19, we saw that Jesus was definitely dead. He wasn't just feeling a little bit unwell. It says that Joseph came and asked Pilate for the body of Jesus that he could bury him. In the other gospel accounts, it says that when, when Pilate was asked whether or not they could take Jesus' body, he actually sent a soldier out to make sure that Jesus was dead. Because Pilate's not going to let someone go unless the full punishment has been taken place of. But there's an interesting reading from Matthew's gospel. It sort of fits in between these two events. From Matthew chapter 27. The next day, that is the day after... The day after, oh sorry, after the day of preparation, and we saw the other week that the day of preparation was the day before the Sabbath when they prepared things, knowing the Sabbath was a day when they would rest and they would, certain things they wouldn't do. So this is the Sabbath day, the day that the, the religious people thought was a very important day. Let's see what the religious leaders are doing on this day. The chief priests and Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. That's an interesting fact in and of itself. Because when you look through the Gospels, not a single one of the disciples appears to expect or even remember that Jesus said he would rise on the third day. Yet his enemies remembered it very well. So they requested Pilate, therefore order the tomb be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he's risen from the dead. And the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, you have a guard of soldiers, go and make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. And we've seen a number of times as we've gone through John's gospel, a lot of things where it looks completely against the odds that anything's going to happen the way God said it's going to happen. Here it is, they've got Roman guards guarding this thing, they've put a seal around this tomb. Yet things are very different on that first day of the week. This is where John chapter 20 comes in. It begins the first day of the week, which is the Sunday, also the third day. So the first day is Friday when he was crucified, second day, Saturday. Third day is the day when Jesus has said he would be raised from the dead. But what we see on this day isn't a day of celebration. We don't see the disciples saying, oh, count down, this is the day it's going to happen. The other gospels speak about the disciples being locked away in a room for fear of the Jews and mourning that Jesus had died, not expecting it. John tells us Mary Magdalene goes out early in the morning. Not because she wants to get the first glimpse of a resurrected Christ. Mark's gospel says she's taking out spices to embalm a corpse. She's not expecting a resurrection at all. But as she comes upon this tomb she discovers the stone's been rolled away. Now, she probably has no idea there was a Roman guard and it was sealed, but she knows that the tomb where Jesus was laid, that stone's been rolled away. It is open. Something has happened. And she runs off and she comes across John and Peter and says, they've taken my Lord. Who do you think she might be thinking? She doesn't seem to be thinking the disciples have taken. When it says to other disciples, they've taken, she's presuming some of the enemies. 
maybe the Romans or religious leaders. They've taken him and says, we don't know where they've put him. So we, meaning her and others, because other gospels speak about another Mary, Salome and Joanna had gone out to the, gone out to the tomb this Sunday morning. You can imagine this comes as a shock to John and Peter too. Now remember, they don't expect Jesus is going to be raised, even though he said it on a number of times directly to them, even though the Old Testament scriptures will see testify that this must happen. But they know that something is different. Something has shocked them. This tomb which Jesus was in, the stones rolled away and they go running there. And in what is what, what I think is one of the funniest parts of the Bible, John is declared for all time as being the greatest runner as composed of Peter. It says, and the other disciple, which is John, and Peter ran to the tomb and it's recorded and the other disciple got there first. And then to rub his nose into verse 8, then the other disciple, that is the one who got there first, does not forget... And John looks in, but he doesn't go in at first. He sees a linen cloth. The cloth that was wrapped around Jesus. The body is not there. Peter looks in, sees the clothes, and he sees the cloth that was on his face neatly folded up next to where he was. Now, I don't think someone's gone and stolen this body unless they're particular tidy and polite stealers of body. They go in and think, oh, we better unwrap him and, oh, I can't leave it messy, you know, and fold it up nicely and put it there so it looks presentable when people come. It's very important. We've seen that Jesus was buried. He was confirmed to be dead by Pilate's soldiers, that it was important that he was definitely dead, but it's also equally important that he was definitely raised and very raised in a bodily form, not just some spiritual form. Sometimes people make a contrast between Lazarus and Jesus. Think, oh, both raised on the third day, but it's not the same. When Lazarus was raised, he was raised to the exact type of life that he had before, the exact type of body he had before. When Jesus was raised, he was raised with his glorious body like we will get when we were raised. And he's not raised to the same type of life once again. He's raised to be ascended to seated at the right hand of the Father. Now John finally goes in and says he saw and he believed. John is one of the disciples, one of the close disciples to Jesus, has heard Jesus say a number of times that he will be raised, but didn't believe a single thing until he saw it with his own eyes. You think, that doesn't look too good for Christians, does it, in the Bible, that Jesus' closest followers didn't believe that he was going to be raised. But it's the way it's recorded. But it says he believed because of what he saw. So not only did he not believe because Jesus said he was, neither did he believe that the Scriptures had said he would. We've already seen the reading from Psalm 16 that that Samuel picked up on the quote in Acts Acts chapter 2. We'll not see, let your holy ones see corruption. There's one such example of where it was foretold in the Old Testament. Another one is in Isaiah 53 that often gets, gets read over the Easter period. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and to cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hands. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servants will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. And then what seems the oddest thing at all, after that says, then the disciples went home. 
The disciples are gone. They've seen an empty tomb. They've seen the, these clothes and the things that were wrapped around him are gone. They just went home. Now, I wonder, did they talk to anyone? Remember when, when on the cross, Jesus says to John, this is the other disciple, the quick one, that Mary, you go live with him and he's going to look after you. Do you reckon he actually told Mary when he got home what he'd seen? We don't know. But Mary, it says, stood weeping at the tomb. We don't know where this fits in, if it's sort of earlier or if this happens after the disciples. Mary takes a look in the tomb and what she notes that she sees is two angels, one at the head and one at the the feet. There is a clear indication that Jesus' absence from that tomb is not because of human intervention, but because of divine intervention. And the angels ask her, why are you weeping? Now, I don't know if that's intended to be a rebuke of saying, he's told you this, why are you crying about it? Jesus doesn't rebuke them for their unbelief in that sense. She says, they've taken my Lord. Now, when she says they have taken, she's clearly not referring to the disciples. She's spoken to Peter and John, they don't know a thing about it. She's thinking either the religious leaders or the Romans. Then it says she turned, for whatever reason she turned. She saw Jesus and didn't recognise him. Why not? She has spent years following around, knows exactly who Jesus is, yet she doesn't recognise him. Is it because the way he's described in Psalm 53 that his body was so marred beyond recognition? I mean, we don't know the, the, the entirety of the difference between how he looked at the moment of his death and his resurrected body. We know he's still got the hand, the, the nail prints and the hands and the feet. Or is it because she was so overwhelmed with tears she couldn't see properly? Or is it just plain old common sense? Imagine you go to a funeral and three days later you see a guy who looks a dead set ringer for the person whose funeral went to. You're not going to automatically think, oh, there he is. Well, I've never done that. If you have, then all good for you. So she presumes this guy must be the gardener. I mean, who else is going to be out there at this time? And she says... Do you know where he is? Have you moved him? She asked Jesus, have you moved Jesus? And to an extent he has actually. Because Jesus did say, I lay down my life in order to take it back up again. He didn't humour and go with it on that way. But in her words she said, I don't know where he is. Him, him, him. Her focus is all about who, who Jesus is. It's all she's thinking about. When Jesus calls her by name Mary, Instantly she recognises who he is. Jesus says, my sheep know my voice. And she responds, teacher. Wraps her arms around him. And Jesus like, do not cling to me. Or literally, do not touch me. All of a sudden, has he now got this issue with personal space? Like earlier on, he was quite okay for Mary to cry and wash his feet with the, with the hair and her tears. Thomas later comes down and bows down at the feet, down at the feet of Jesus. Why on earth would he say, don't cling to me, don't touch me? He says, why? For I have not ascended. In other words, do not hold on to me as though good you're back. Everything's just going to go back the way it always has been. This is not where it's all about me being on earth and going back to the old thing. That's not what it's about. Don't hold on to this idea of me on earth. There's something better ahead. I'm returning to the Father. 
But do not cling to me, but instead, go to my brothers, tell them that you have seen the Lord and that I am ascending to the right hand of God. Now, whether he refers to brothers as his literal brothers, we don't know. I mean, what Mary directly does is tell the disciples. But just as a side note on on his brothers, in John 7 verse 5, it says his brothers didn't believe that he was who he claimed to be. However, the testimony of Acts 1.14 is after the resurrection, they were convinced of who he was. So Mary goes and tells the disciples they've seen the Lord. And so on this day, there's been an empty tomb witnessed by Peter, John, and the very first witness is Mary, which in the first century would have been a little bit embarrassing because a woman's testimony was not considered to be valid. Yet it was the plan of God. It was the will of God that a woman would be the first to witness. That in many ways he actually turned up on, up on its head the way in which the culture viewed and valued women. And at this point in time, I've got a little confession. Last night, I think about 8 o'clock, I came to the realisation that I wasn't supposed to be preaching through the entirety of John chapter 20. Samuel is preaching on the bit that follows after that next week. And I prepared a sermon on the whole chapter. And, and I thought to myself, why did I do that? Why would I leave it at this point in time? Clearly when I break up which passage we pre- preach on each week, I must have had a good reason. I can't remember what that reason was now, but to me when I look at it I think, why would I stop it at here? This is the most central event of the Christian faith and I'll leave it at such a point that we just have two people see an empty tomb and one woman see it. There's more to it than that. The last thing I want is people to come along thinking that only one person saw Jesus raised. I mean, after all, that's one of the big concerns people have about other religions, isn't it? That, that there's sacred books are written and only one person has ever seen the things that apparently are written in them. As you'll see next week, as Samuel preaches, there are um, appearances both to the disciples. But to go back to 1 Corinthians 15, which we mentioned on Good Friday, where it says, For I have delivered to you as the first important what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. Now, Paul says the first and most important thing, Christ died for our sins. Because we saw that every single one of us have sinned and every single one of us are under the punishment of sin. So it's important that we know that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep, or died, not just fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to the apostles, last of all, as to me, one untimely born, he also appeared, appeared to me, that's Paul writing that. So Jesus didn't just appear in his risen form just to, to one person, nor did he only just appear to his inner sanctum of 12 close followers. It says there was one occasion, and this is not necessarily meant to be in a, a comprehensive list, where there were 500 people there. And Paul's writing this in the first century, and he says, and some of them are alive, most of them are alive. You want to find out if someone's seen the resurrected Christ, you can go ask probably in any town you go to.
This was not something secret happened behind closed doors. This was public. The entire Christian faith, the central events are all public events. These are not things that are easy to make falsifiable when you've got 500 witnesses or more. So says, go and ask them if you don't believe. The funny thing is, the thing that people have the most difficulty believing about the Christian faith is that Jesus would rise from the dead. But the funny thing is, when you look at all of the options, it is actually the most reasonable option to consider. When you consider the other options, you think, that's ridiculous, why would you think that? And let's take a look at some of those alternatives. Some people say, Jesus' disciples went and stole the body. Interestingly, we've already seen Matthew 27, the Jewish leaders thought they might do that, so they put a big set of Roman soldiers around it, had the tomb sealed. But the picture we have of the disciples on that day is very different, isn't it? They're locked away in a room for fear of the Jews, mourning, thinking Jesus isn't dead, what are they going to do now that he's dead? They don't even expect him to rise, why would they want to give the impression that he had? And if they're scared of the Jews because they've come and taken Jesus and they're scared, oh no, no one's coming after me, what makes you think all of a sudden they're going to get all excited and get all their mates, go out there like a big Sylvester Stallone movie, movie, take out all the Roman guards, rip open the the tomb that's been sealed, take Jesus out, then hide him so no one finds him? That's a bit hard to believe, isn't it? These guys have hiding out of fear of their life, who abandoned Jesus the moment he was arrested, that somehow they'd get some bold courage to go take on these Roman guards and rip open the tomb. The second option people go for is that he wasn't really dead. Jesus was almost dead, but he came to life in the tomb and all was good. Now there's a few issues with that. One is One of the main issues is the fact that when Joseph goes and asks Pilate for the body, Pilate sends a soldier to make sure he's dead. It's been confirmed that he's dead. But let's humour the idea maybe he wasn't. He was, and he definitely was, and he had to be. But if he wasn't, he's got that huge flogging. You've seen the Passion of the Christ, as ugly as it is, it's probably what it looked like. He's hung on the cross, he's had a spear in his side, he gets put in a tomb for three days, no food, no drink, and then somehow you think he just started to feel better. Took his stuff off, neatly folded up, because after all, Jesus is the example to follow, so you need to fold up your clothes. Then he must have had masses of strength after not eating any food and he's flogging the crucifixion, all that stuff, to get open out of the, the sealed tomb. While he's at it, take on all the Roman soldiers, put them down, and then go into hiding so no one would find him. Not easy to believe. The third option, people say, the disciples were so convinced that Jesus would be raised from the dead that they worked it up so much in their mind that they believed it was true. But what did the Bible say about the disciples? None of them thought he was going to be raised from the dead. So to think that they wanted it so badly, it's not there because they didn't even think it was going to happen. They were locked in a room hiding with fear. And lastly, someone will say, the women went to the wrong tomb. They went to a different one, the thing's open, whoopsie, all's good. Luke chapter 23 verse 55 says that these women followed Joseph and Nicodemus and saw exactly the place where Jesus was laid. But beyond that, 
When Christians start claiming that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead, it causes major unrest and the Romans are not happy. They want to see, they want peaceful relationships between the Romans and the Jews. And if this guy, if people are saying he's come back from the dead, they're not happy and they're going to do something to bring that to, to an end. Cornelius Tacitus, one of the great Roman historians of the first century, not a Christian, this is how he records events around that period. It says, consequently, to get rid of the report, Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations, called Christians by the populace. Christus, or Christ, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilate, and a most mischievous superstition, thus checked for a moment, again broke out not only in Judea, the first source of the evil, but even in Rome, where all things hideous and shameful from every hit part find the world, find their centre and become popular. So Tacitus says that, yes, you know what? It's a historical fact. Jesus was crucified under Pontius Pilate. But then he says something else. Something by way of superstition started to break out. Maybe something like people claiming that Jesus was raised from the dead. Now this doesn't go well. What does he go on to say? And accordingly, this is how it was responded to, an arrest was first made of all who pleaded guilty to to this superstition, this idea that Jesus was raised from the dead. Then upon their information, an immense multitude was convicted, not so much of the crime of firing the city, as hatred against mankind. Mockery of every sort was added to the deaths. Covered with skins of beasts, they were torn by dogs and perished, or were nailed to crosses, or were doomed to the flames and burnt to serve as nightly illumination when the daylight had expired. Rome wanted to put this to an end. They didn't want this spreading around whatsoever. And so they took everyone who made these sort of claims and they brutally tortured them. It was said that some of the Roman emperors used to set Christians on fire to provide lighting for their parties. You think, you're not going to go make that claim unless you're pretty serious when these are the consequences. Clearly Rome wanted this to stop. You want to know the easiest way to get it to stop? Pull out a dead corpse and say, no he didn't. They couldn't. There was no corpse to produce. Jesus had indeed risen. The fact is over 500 people seen him who were alive at the time where people could attest it. None of the writings from the early century saying these 500 people reckon they've seen him. No, they didn't. History records people were arrested. People were emboldened. These Even the disciples who were hiding in fear from the Jews, at some point something changes and they were willing to give their life and limb to proclaim that Jesus was raised. When you read throughout the book of Acts, you'll see more than anything, the main thing they speak on at every time is Jesus being raised from the dead. And every single one of the, the 12 disciples, obviously not Judas who'd committed suicide, all except for John were killed for their faith. Now, it's not they didn't try with John, they tried to boil him in oil, but he didn't die. Only a genuine encounter with the risen Christ makes sense to why these timid, fearful, scared disciples would then risk their life proclaiming throughout the whole world that Jesus had been raised. So the most reasonable conclusion of all those options is Jesus actually was raised. 
But so what? I could say, oh, Jesus died and he was raised again, and you might think, well, that's interesting. No one's ever done that. But I don't want it just to be something fascinating if it hasn't got a meaning or a purpose. Remember on Friday, we talked about the idea that Romans 3.23 says that all of us have, have, have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And we said sin is not just doing particular horrific actions. The word sin means to miss the mark, and not just miss the mark in terms of our behavioural standards, but miss the mark of who we are, who is our identity. To miss the mark of our true identity, being created by God to be in relationship with God. To live under his perfect and loving rule. That's where we were safest, that's where it was best for us, that's what we were made for. And Romans 6.23 told us the wages of sin is death. The wages is what you receive for what you do. Now we're all headed where we're going to receive death, both physical death, spiritual death, separation from Jesus and under his judgment. That's where we're all headed. On Friday we mentioned Jesus said numerous times he must die. He said he came that he might lay down his life as a ransom for many. For that very reason, he came to be our substitute. We were headed for the punishment of death. He took that punishment so we don't have to. But if all he did was die, was put in a tomb and he's left dead, I wouldn't trust that to be my saviour. I wouldn't commit my life to that. Even the Bible's very clear about it. You read through 1 Corinthians 15, it says, if Jesus wasn't raised... Your faith is futile, your preaching is in vain, you're still in your sins, and you Christians are the most to be pitied of anyone in the whole earth. That's that's the Bible's own claims. But the resurrection is not just a miraculous party trick. It is what demonstrates that Jesus has all the resources to achieve what he says his death would achieve, to secure those things. When he said he came to die a death to set us free from sin, when Jesus died a death on behalf of sin, he needs to prove he can conquer that. And by his resurrection, he's shown that death did not hold him down. He'd conquered it. When he says that all who believe in me shall have eternal life, they shall pass from death to life, we need to see that he has conquered death, that he can follow through on what he's promised. When he says all who come to me, I will raise up on the last day. He's shown his power to raise to newness of life as he has raised to the right hand of the Father. When we're told that he stands there in our place bearing our sin as God raised him from the dead, we see that God puts his stamp of approval that that payment is acceptable to me. It has been paid in full. Easter is a reason for great celebration. But the resurrection is what makes it the celebration. It demonstrates the authority that God has to do all the things that he claimed to do. On Friday we saw that Jesus died on behalf of sinful men, of which all of us were guilty. On Sunday we see his power and authority over sin, death, Satan, and he can grant us the new life he promises. For some people, they might believe these things as fact. Jesus died, Jesus reigned. But consider them to be inconvenient truths because they realise, if I was once living, doing my own thing, if I'm going to trust him in, I need to change. 
I would encourage you, if you don't, if you don't believe these things to be true, to examine the history, not only what it says in the Bible. I mean, there's Bibles up on the book table. Please take one as a gift. There are four biographies of Jesus' life. The one we've read from this morning is John's. Read the whole thing to see, see where this fits into the whole story. There's another stack of books up there. Three, two, one, the story of God, the world and you that explains what it means to be a Christian. It's even got a section in the back that asks some of the common questions that we, people ask. Okay, but is it true? Is the Bible trustworthy? How does a good God fit with evil and suffering? How does a loving God fit with judgment? How can anyone join the church when it's full of hate, history and hypocrisy? What about other faiths? Why are Christians so weird about sex and sexuality? And aren't Christians anti-science? So if you'd like one of those, please take one of those. It's a free gift as well. But I haven't just come to convince people in their mind that factual things happen in our history. I'd encourage you to, to search yourself. Now, the Bible tells us that there is something corrupt about mankind that was broken when Adam and Eve turned their back on God, decided they want to do things their own way. It doesn't mean that you must do wicked, woeful things. I mean, I search myself and I see I constantly make decisions that I think are good that has disastrous results for my own self. I find myself hurting people and hurting people I love the most. And, I want, and some people want to think there's nothing wrong with the human race. That's not normal. Something within us tells us this isn't normal. When we see atrocities in the world, people say that shouldn't happen because we understand we were created for something else. Easter is a time to celebrate that the greatest thing that we needed was our sins dealt with to be restored to who we were intended to be in relationship with God. Jesus has done that. He says, and all who come to me, saying sorry for the fact they turned their back on God to live their own way, and because they're sorry they've done that, commit to living in right relationship with him again. So all who come to me, have eternal life. They have passed from death to life and I will raise them on the last day. And we can look forward to our guaranteed future because we've seen the one who has promised these things has authority over sin, death, Satan, and can raise us exactly as he has promised. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, it is a joy that we can call upon you, our Father, because Jesus has done, and we can have absolute certainty that what he has done is complete and once for all. Uh, we thank you that this is a free gift. We thank you that you have done everything. It's not about us attaining a certain standard of living to do it. But if anything, it's a, it's a recognition that we haven't matched up to the standard and that we are trusting that what you have done is pay that price for us. Lord, we thank you that we can be confident not only what you've promised for us in our past, but what you've promised for our future. For you, as you have demonstrated that you are the ultimate authority, you are the one above all rule and authority. And we thank you too for the inner witness that each of us have, that we, we were created for this. We were created for a relationship with you. And even though we mess that up, because you are a loving God, you entered into the struggle of our world, and you took the punishment on our behalf. You stood in our place so that we could have a right relationship with you again. 
We pray for those who know you that this would be a day of great celebration. We pray for those who do not currently know you that today would be the day that they have come to understand why Easter is a celebration, that they would call upon you for forgiveness, that they would have the same assurance that you have dealt with the most significant need in our life and that this is indeed what each of us were created for. We give you thanks for that. In Jesus' name, amen.